Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We, of course, have a lot to talk about today. We all know what we are going to start the show with, and that, of course, is the Supreme Court decision that, uh, you know, Wise minds were looking for today when the court added the extra day of uh, decisions this week, and we have gotten it, and we have gotten uh, the overruling of both the Roe and Casey decisions that uh, protected a constitutional right to have an abortion. So we are going to talk about that in just a couple of minutes. Just to let you know what we're going to get to later in the show, we are, of course, going to cover what else has come out of that EU summit Uh, underway in Brussels, and we are going to preview the G7 that starts over the weekend. We are going to talk about some protests underway in Ecuador. We are going to take a look um, at this abortion decision today and at some of the other consequential Supreme Court decisions that have come out over the course of this week. We are going to take a look at an especially um, urgent and relevant story with our favorite tech guest a little bit later, looking at what kind of uh, data crisis pregnancy centers are selling to Facebook and whether we should trust social media companies to self-regulate when it comes to data that now in uh, 13 states of the country will probably be even more valuable than it was before. So we are going to get to all of that. But of course, we have to start with this. Held, the Constitution does not confer a right to an abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. And you know, That last phrase could be something of a life raft, but for the nature of our elected representatives in this era, where we have one side really an increasingly uh, unhinged authoritarian and quasi-religious right wing, and on the other, you know, a Democratic Party enthralled to most of the same financial interests and and just, I don't know, unwilling, unable to actually use power effectively when they hold it. And so what we have now is a, a really terrible day for women and for poor people especially all over this country and quite a lot of shame to go around. One of the things that shocked me about this was the fact that so many observers believed that Chief Justice Roberts was going to be a moderating factor of some sort. Mm -hmm. And they were telling people, don't jump to conclusions. This is what Roberts does. He uh, looks to see which way the court seems to be going, and then he sets out to try to pull people over to his Mm -hmm. position. Well, his position was the position of the right wing. Mm -hmm. And so rather than five to four or five to four upholding Roe, we got six to three throwing it back to the states. Yeah. Uh, Roberts did nothing for pro-choice. Uh, With a bunch of people, concurring Americans. opinions uh, that I think is perhaps sort of interesting, but of, of lesser import, really. Yeah. There will be protests in front of the Supreme Court all day. There are protests planned for states around the country because, of course, this decision absolutely goes against the consistently demonstrated will of the majority of people in this country. Here to talk about what this means is Kim Keenan. She's adjunct professor at George Washington University, and she's a former general counsel of the NAACP. Thank you for joining us, Kim. Today, we have so much to talk about. Oh, we do. I want to just get your, well, you know, I want to get your reaction to what the final, the final written uh, opinion was and, and what it means. Well, it's only been out a few hours, but I'm trying to ferret my way through all 200 pages. Right. Let me, let me say this. Um, it is clear that this is 
doubling back in history and they keep talking about the nation's history and traditions. Mm-hmm. I'm totally surprised. Like what history are they using? At least if they could just provide us with that history book, it would help us mm-hmm. understand the rationale because I mean, there is no public history, if you will, and tradition of abortion. But that doesn't mean that we can strip people of a right that is personal and and that has a lot to do with how we as a society view the rights of women. I mean, to say that this is not a gender-based decision is foolish. Mm -hmm. They're the only people who can have children. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think the court is it is definitely an ideology rather than a focus on what the living document that is the Constitution says. And, you know, again, if we if we restricted ourselves to the precise wording of everything in the Constitution, we would be back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. But it was clear, it was very clear when this document was written that even though it was a room of all white men, they recognized that things would come about, that the world would change, that it would blossom, that things they never even invented yet would come to pass. So this notion that we must decide this, you know, every decision with the history and tradition of the nation, they're going to take us back to a really bad place. And I think as we talk about this, we're going to puzzle through some of that. Um, this is this is the beginning of something very bad. Well, yes. And on that topic, you know, how concerned should we be? I, I mentioned when we introduced this, that uh, a bunch of the justices concurring with this opinion wrote their own opinions. Uh, one of them was Justice Clarence Thomas, who said that the court should also reconsider decisions that protect contraception, same-sex marriage, and even same-sex relationships, uh, several of which re- rest on the same uh, right to privacy that this court doesn't seem to want to recognize. So when you say this is just the beginning, is that is that what you are looking at? And is this what people should be really worried about? Oh, yeah. People Mm -hmm. be very worried. If you have a same-sex relationship or a same-sex marriage or you are worried about whether you'll have contraception so you don't have to need an abortion. Um, And I note that Justice Thomas left out the Loving versus Virginia case. all of those cases. So I'm trying to figure out what they're going to do. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to go all the way back, but somehow we're going to find a tradition for interracial marriage in the history and the traditions of this nation. I mean, it's so... Right. Well, that's that's the thing, Kim. Haven't, haven't these six justices put themselves in a, in a box now? Because if there is no uh, precedent for a right to privacy if there's no respect in the supreme court for precedent then what's to keep this court or some future court from overturning loving v virginia nothing oh my god just be honest there's nothing i i think that's what's so concerning about this and you know what do you do about the people who have already married right how do you good question the marriages, all of the marriages, because like I said, if you get on this slippery slope, I don't know if you recall, but at least one um, Republican actually said in the news, we need to look look at this interracial marriage thing. I mean, oh, my God, that the whole focus of this is literally turning back the clock. And I tell you, the irony is I can carry and bear bear. I love that I can bear a gun on me. Mm-hmm. 
but I can't decide whether I want to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And again, no one, no one wants to be in that. But that, and that's the thing that I think nobody ever says in these discussions. Nobody ever wants to have to make that choice. I, I don't think there are women out there who are just sitting there thinking, oh, I'll just do that again next week. You know, mm-hmm. not how women see this. This is that's a choice that's made that's made privately, that's made for reasons that that we all can't judge or sit in judgment of. And so once you decide that that women don't have the ability to make that decision without a whole community voting on it, then all the other stuff is up for grabs. I mean, all everything related to being transgender and choosing all these things, all these things are up on the table. They are they are turning the clock back, but they're turning it back violently. And, you know, I I think it bears mentioning that this is not what most people in the United States want. And so I want to ask what you think, uh, you know, decisions like this. And and again, if if uh, Clarence Thomas is is, uh, I'm not going to say correct, but like if if what he is calling for does actually happen, you know, what does it say about. Uh, the way the court and some of our other institutions, I'm thinking about the Senate, I'm thinking about the Electoral College. What does it say that we have arrived at this moment where our structures of government are, are facilitating the violation of the clear will of the majority so easily and so robustly? Right. I, I, I don't think it's a good thing. I do think um, that it is a moment where we have to carefully figure out how we move forward, because you're absolutely right. It's a democracy, and so it really is the will of the majority. And it went, the court is really taking hits for this that they don't actually see in real time. You know, we see the protests at the Supreme Court, but the reality is, like you said, the base of America um, is not happy with this. This is not how they wanted us to proceed, and and they have the right to vote. And and the truth of it is, um, the electoral college, all these things may need to be reassessed in light of the fact that they don't affect the will of the people. If we're handing it back, right, mm-hmm. back to the states to decide. Well, I think you know people need to get get in gear and tell people what they truly want. And I I do think that this is going to be a catalyst for people that will be activists and will be focused. You know, people thought it didn't matter who was on the Supreme Court. I remember a time when we were like, oh, it's just some people up there and they make this, you know, right. show that these institutions matter. And the reason why we have three three forms, right, of, of means to have a protection in our Constitution, the reason why there's three is so that we can have balance. And when one of them throws us out of whack, the other ones better get to work and make sure that we get ourselves back. So I, I, I definitely agree with you that, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a moment in our history and, and a big moment because of all the things that happened, everything from the January 6th hearings, everything from this, everything to the, you know, overturn this the right to bear arms unless, you know, there's a reason why they can't have an arm. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things are coming together in a moment and it, and it's time for people to wake up and say, you know, do we want democracy or do we want something else? I know we're tight on time. So I want to, I want to confirm something that Kim has told us on March 22nd of this year, U S Senator Mike Braun, a Republican of Indiana 
said in response to this question from a reporter. So you would be okay with the Supreme Court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states? And he said, yes, I would. I think that that's something that if you're not wanting the Supreme Court to weigh in on issues like that, you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it, too. It's hypocritical. That's right. You know, everybody, again, everybody thinks a problem is over there, right? I'm not a woman. It doesn't bother me. And one day you look up, right, and someone has married someone. You know, it, it, it's not even, it's, it used to be so simple as black and white, but it's not so simple anymore. No, it's not. It, we are such a melting pot. I used to always say the day is going to happen that no matter what someone looks like when they walk in the room, you're just not going to know. You're not going to know whether their grandmother was Native American or whether their great-grandfather was white. You're just you're just not going to know. Your guess is going to be painfully wrong. <laughs> You know what? Maybe that's the day we need to get to, because then people will find a way to make this so that it's the same for everybody. Let me just come back finally to the issue of uh, legislation and what needs to happen legislatively. You have, you know, I think, of course, the the most immediate action will be and should be in, in states. But of course, state legislatures are, are really dominated by Republicans right now. Uh, you have Nancy Pelosi coming out immediately saying, you know, the ruling is cruel and heart wrenching. But make no mistakes, the rights of women and all Americans are on the ballot this November. But uh, Democrats have said this before. They've said this many times. Uh, Obama pres- pr- uh, promised to uh, sign the Freedom of Choice Act and, and did not make that happen. And so I wonder, you know, what needs to happen at the federal legislative level and, and what are the chances of that in the, in the short term? Yeah, we, we need a federal law, of course. But like you said, the chances of it are so abysmal that saying it is almost it's like it's like giving telling you what the remedy is, but not giving you any way to get there. And I think that's what we have a lot of lately. And again, when they when you start undoing um, rights that are hard fought for a reason, by the way, um, then you it's like you're unraveling um, the fabric, right? We're unraveling 50 years of women's right to choose, and we're replacing it with allowing each state to decide when some states have really already decided. And then once they've decided, what happens to the women who get on a plane and go somewhere else? What happens to the women who can't get on a yeah. plane and go? Yeah. Yeah. I just keep coming back to the the privacy angle, too, I think, because it's sort of a personal one for me. But I'm just imagining, you know, uh, you've got a college final, but you're pregnant and you need to travel 500 miles to have an abortion. So now you need to go talk to your professor about this. You need to tell a bunch of people who's, you know, it is absolutely no business of your your private medical affairs. And this is what people are going to have to do. People, women, you know, parents are going to have to have very different relationships with their daughters than than I had to have with my parents parents. You know what I mean? And it really is a loss of privacy. Uh, and I don't, that is really sticking with me in this right now. I'm not sure why that's jumping out more than anything else, but it's just the, the indignity of having to go, please excuse me. Can I take three days off right. to travel uh, several states over to have this uh, medical procedure that I absolutely should not have to be telling you about? Mm-hmm. Right. It's oh, so sad. Well, that was that was Kim Keenan. Kim, we're really glad you could join us on short notice. That, that was uh, adjunct professor at George Washington University and former general counsel of the NAACP, Kim Keenan. Thanks again. Okay. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. European Union heads of state yesterday granted candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova in what the media are describing as a major symbolic victory for both countries. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. Analysts stress, though, that EU membership is not guaranteed for either country and that full membership could be decades away. Albania, Bosnia, Serbia, Kosovo, Montenegro, and North Macedonia walked away from the summit empty-handed. Yeah, they had nothing. They have all been granted candidate status, but their nominations have not moved forward at all after years of waiting. Meanwhile, G7 heads of state will meet on Sunday outside of Munich for their 48th annual meeting, as we told you yesterday. And in other news, the United States announced that it would send an additional $450 million to Ukraine, bringing the latest tranche of aid to that country to more than $6.1 billion. We're joined from Brussels by Sean Blackman. He's the co-host of By Any Means Necessary, which you can hear right here on Radio Sputnik, Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Welcome back, Sean. John, Michelle, thanks so much for having me again. Oh, it's our pleasure, Sean. What we saw yesterday was something of a of a love fest for Ukraine, wasn't it? There was no pushback from any country on Ukraine's EU candidacy, and then the heads of state went on to discuss funding Ukrainian reconstruction once the war ends. Uh, that's pretty much all they talked about. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, as you say, um, uh, Moldova and Ukraine uh, were, you know, they had their candidate status approved unanimously by the heads of the EU. And I mean, to to call it a love fest, I think, is entirely accurate. I mean, you know, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, called it a a historic moment. Uh, The Lithuanian president called it a big victory for Ukraine and the European Union. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the the president of the European Commission, in a press conference following the decision, said that all the countries have to do their homework uh, Mm. for, you know, moving into membership and uh, talking about how they have to work hard to implement the necessary reforms. Now, I'm not entirely sure what she means by homework and reforms. I mean, I do hope in the case of Ukraine that uh, one of those reforms is purging the military and these other elements of neo-Nazis, but that just could be wishful thinking on my behalf, John. But (laughs) you talk about these, uh, those other countries that you mentioned, uh, those other sort of Western Baltic countries. Right. I mean, uh, I don't know if people realize, but some of them were openly considering boycotting the uh, um, summit because they felt that they were either being passed up uh, to move into membership of the EU or into candidate status, depending on uh-huh. the country and uh, things like this. And so I think there's kind of feeling that they got the short end of um, the stick there. But what seems to be clear is that uh, this effusive uh, praise and um, joy, if you will, that we see from the heads of the EU following this decision, I think is is a part of, excuse me, is a part of the, the symbolic nature of this whole piece and frankly plays into like the, the propaganda and information warfare surrounding the uh, uh, Ukraine war itself. I think uh, the feeling was that a symbolic victory like this was needed because the military victory that I think some of them had hoped for um, was uh, not seemingly forthcoming, and nor does it seem to be forthcoming at this point. Despite that, these heads of state 
uh, particularly in the U.S., who, in my opinion, is really leading the charge, mm-hmm. engaged in a, a proxy war with Russia, just sort of using Ukraine as a battlefield, um, they seem uh, hell-bent, frankly, on making this another forever war. And not only are they willing to fight Ukraine down to the last Ukrainian, they're clearly not that concerned about the economic impact that that could have in the U.S., in uh, in Europe, and indeed across the world. As I think I mentioned yesterday, I mean, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, the head of NATO, Secretary General of NATO, basically said that that economic suffering that people were uh, uh, going under was basically worth it uh, in order to keep this thing going. And so, honestly, it feels like the European Union has kind of painted itself into a corner because I think they're smart enough to recognize that uh, if things are not going the way they would hope from a military standpoint as it pertains to uh, the war in Ukraine, but they're kind of in a position where they, they have nowhere else to go. I mean, they're so heavily invested now in yeah. ways that uh, that this sort of thing seems necessary. And from the standpoint of the Ukrainian government under Volodymyr Zelensky, I think that maybe he just felt that Ukraine needed something to hang its hat on since there's not much of a substance to really celebrate as it pertains to the war right now. Let me ask you about these other uh, countries. I, I was actually a little surprised to see how many other countries were turned away from the EU this year. Um, I would have thought, for example, that Serbia and Bosnia and perhaps even Montenegro had a good shot at EU membership, but that wasn't to be. It didn't pan out. Bulgaria is blocking North Macedonia for essentially the same reasons that Greece blocked North Macedonia for so many years getting into NATO. And for whatever reason, the EU or the European Commission, at least, said that Albania's fate is tied to North Macedonia's, that Albania is not going to be admitted until North Macedonia is admitted. And that could be decades from now. But why the reluctance to expand the EU into the Balkans? Some of these economies are actually developing quite nicely, and it would make sense for them to be members of the European Union. Yeah, you know, I I was similarly confused about why North Macedonia and Albania are being treated as, you know, they're like tied at the hip. Yeah, I don't understand it. You know, membership. Yeah, I don't get that at all. And I've wondered that myself of all these countries uh, who have been waiting all this time. I mean, even Volodymyr Zelensky said that uh, Ukraine had been waiting 120 days and 30 years. For their moment, just to be a, a candidate, and the, what I've come up with, John, honestly, is that uh, despite whatever benefit those other countries may bring to the EU, economically or otherwise, in this moment, they are simply not uh, a political priority yeah. to the EU or to the West in general. You know what I mean? Whereas you mm-hmm. absolutely is. So that's why not only are they made. A candidate, but there's a ticker tape parade of sorts thrown in their honor. You know what I mean? Right. I think some of the heads of these governments are sort of understandably frustrated because they've been patiently waiting their turn, and here comes the Ukraine and Moldova sort of uh, hit on on the fast track. And I'm I'm interested to see whether or not there's going to be any sort of fallout or blowback from that uh, in the in the period to come. Sean, President Zelensky announced this morning that Ukrainian forces would begin an immediate withdrawal from uh, Severodonetsk. Uh, This is exactly what the Russian military wanted to happen. The Russians are slowly consolidating their authority in Donetsk and Luhansk. And that has to call into question U.S. and EU strategy, which is to provide aid and materiel piecemeal 
and to draw out the war as long as possible with an eye toward weakening the Russians. Now, you said in your comments at the start of this um, of this uh, segment that uh, the United States was willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. That seems to be pretty clear in in the way this policy is is playing out. Uh, at the same time, the policy doesn't really seem to be working because the Ukrainians are losing. What are your thoughts on this? Is, is this is this just a, a policy screw up by the United States at a great cost to the Ukrainians? Well, I, I don't think it's a screw up, to be honest with you. Mm. I think from the very beginning, the U.S. Uh, knew that it would likely that this would likely all this funneling of you know money and, and weapons and things like that to Ukraine would not uh, bring about a military victory for Ukraine. I think they were very aware that that was a potentiality, and they just didn't care, you know, in the same way that all their swatting away of uh, uh, Russia's olive branches and the time leading up to the invasion, they knew the consequences would be there, too. Mm. Willing to do that, they were willing to um, basically... Uh, uh, put Ukrainian lives on the line, same ones that they claim to care about so much. They were very willing to put those lives on the line in order to uh, carry out this proxy conflict with uh, uh, Moscow. And I think that that's what continues to motivate them to this uh, uh, very day, even if it doesn't seem to make sense on paper. And for me, it just sort of further uh, confirms the fact you know, the, the, the U.S. is, uh, it will continue to do these things. And the fact that for all of their talk of caring about democracy and sovereignty, in reality, Washington is just maneuvering for its own uh, interest. And if Ukrainians continue to die and suffer and be displaced from Ukraine, well, then so be it. Um, the Los Angeles Times this morning published an opinion piece saying that because of the war in Ukraine, uh, this was the most important G7 summit in a generation. It begins on Sunday, but that a Joe Biden who is weak at home is a Joe Biden who is weak abroad. The Times argues that the G7 needs strong U.S. leadership right now and that it's not getting it. I'm not sure what this means in the greater scheme of things, but you've been talking to people in Brussels. You're on your way to Munich. What are what are Europeans saying about Joe Biden and his ability to be the strong American that apparently Europeans want to see? Well, I think to, to understand that, we sort of have to look at the Biden administration and also in the context of the Donald Trump administration that preceded him. Because yeah. Donald Trump, although um, some of his foreign policy ideas diverted uh, from the typical Washington consensus, although his administration was also shot through with these uh, hawkish neocons, mm -hmm. John Bolton, and, and things like that. So this uh, brought about a kind of belligerence and unpredictability that makes, you know, governments understandably uh, uh, very nervous. And then we have Joe Biden, who we were told uh, that we just had to vote for because he was going to save us from Trump. Mm -hmm. And we see that his uh, uh, approval ratings are, are circling the drain. And there's really nothing that the Democrats are putting forth that I think can necessarily save them for sure in the coming future, namely in the uh, upcoming um, uh, midterms here in the U.S. and the presidential election that's set to take place 
in uh, two years. And so the U.S. is weak in this moment. It's, it's weak internally. I mean, just today, I'm sure you all were discussing um, about how uh, Roe v. Wade has been hurt. Mm-hmm. Yep. In the supposedly forward-thinking, cosmopolitan, uh, progressive United States, and of course, a big part of that is the fact that, similar to a lot of other issues, the Democrats absolutely refused to actually fight for this issue, and they never codified um, Roe into law, even when they had several opportunities to do so. So that internal weakness, I think, is going to translate to um, uh, a kind of external weakness in terms of the uh, international image of the United States abroad deteriorating more and more and more. And I think I said uh, something to this effect yesterday. I tend to think that the U.S. will continue to to try to strike, you know, a posture of strength. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the folks involved in the G7, I think, are very aware of different situations happening with the U.S. and the position of Joe Biden. And, you know, this refusal on the part of the Democrats to really fight for the people they consider its base and uh, these other tensions that are arising here inside the U.S., I think will continue to filter outside uh, of the U.S. and basically continue the decline of uh, U.S. imperialism. Sean, do you think Americans are focused on these uh, big issues, these big international issues? Uh, Certainly, Americans are following the war in Ukraine, but do you think that they're following what kinds of, let's say, communiques are coming out of the, the G7 or coming out of the EU summit? Or do you think that they're focused more on sort of their day-to-day lives and fighting inflation and paying for gas? Are these international issues that we talk about terribly important to the average American? I think, unfortunately, the people of the United States are excruciatingly parochial and very uh, limited in their views, concerns, or interests. Now, and that that's not their fault, because all of the institutions of knowledge production in the United States, from education to higher learning to media to uh, all these sorts uh, of things, are basically shot through with this imperial hubris that we call American exceptionalism. And since our media pla- uh, our media outlets are corporate-owned, they're owned by corporations and billionaires and things like this, well, then they basically get the messaging and the stories and the framing that um, are going to be advantageous to those not necessarily to their interest as just a rank-and-file person in this country. The reason why the people of the U.S. were so concerned about Ukraine and why there was so much um, uh, sentimentality and just this, you know, deep feeling amongst the American people about Ukraine was largely because of, you know, the incessant propaganda from the mainstream media. Now, mind you, um, I think that, you know, just as human beings, I think we kind of have a natural aversion to war, and particularly the U.S. as a a war-worn, a war-weary people. Um, But this is something that was really pumped up and promoted to the point where I saw with my own eyes in Washington, D.C., in Lafayette Square, you know, the red and black flags of the white sector. I remember I even saw one guy who had a red and black scarf with Stephen Bandera's face on him. Oh, my God. But see, but to the extent that, you know, his name in history is even known in the U.S. or what the right sector is, or even to the extent that these neo-Nazi forces are shot through uh, elements of the Ukrainian state, although that's, you know, becoming more and more apparent, it, it basically was, was sort of uh, overlooked. So that's how deep this thing goes. And without question, uh, people of the U.S. are concerned about the cost of gas, cost of food, and things like this. 
But uh, ultimately, in terms of the international situation, I think, frankly, most Americans are only interested in what the corporate-owned media platforms are telling them to be interested in. That, that, that's the kind of stranglehold that these platforms have on Americans' consciousness. And so that's why I think platforms like Political Misfits and By Any Means Necessary and other alternative outlets are so important as a corrective to that. Along with that, I think we have to do some real organizing and some real political education to not only expose the reality of what's happening, but uh, bringing together a collective effort to actually change the conditions that are being thrust upon us by people who don't care if we live or die. Sean, last question for you. Uh, Do you expect uh, anything unusual to come out of this G7 summit, or should should we expect what the, the mainstream media have been telling us to expect, that is, new sanctions on Russia and a vague promise to work together on this Ukraine war? I don't personally expect anything uh, out of the ordinary to take place at the G7. You know, it just seems clear that both the uh, EU summit and the G7 are basically, you know, uh, referendums on Ukraine itself in different ways. And so I tend to think that the G7 will... um, uh, uh, reflect that as well. And I would be surprised if we didn't see some new sanctions of some sort in Russia. I was talking to um, fault lines earlier and then, you know, they were asking, you know, yesterday, was there anything left to uh, a sanction? Yeah, right. You know, because that, that's just how deep uh, things have gotten. Although, you know, you know, I tend to think they'll find something because they almost always do. But uh, even so, uh, and let's just say that they don't come out with new sanctions. It's still clear that uh, the U.S., NATO, and the EU, and the West collectively um, are intent on turning this proxy war in Ukraine into a forever war and continuing to uh, uh, move forward the way that they are, funneling all this money and resources to uh, the Ukraine military, even if it means the ongoing suffering of the Ukrainian people, mm-hmm. you know, have been martyred in the minds of the American people, but who don't seem to get much care from the U.S. government themselves. Okay, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Sean Blackman, who joined us from Brussels. Sean is the co-host of By Any Means Necessary. You can hear that show right here on Radio Sputnik, Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, continuing to look abroad for this first hour before we come back to the extremely consequential support Supreme Court rulings uh, that we've gotten all week, including today in our second hour. Uh, but for right now, we are taking a look at some protests in Ecuador that have really not gotten that much attention no. considering how significant and longstanding they've been. Mm-hmm. Protests in Ecuador are in their 11th day, I believe, and they have, uh, according to reports, they have paralyzed the capital. They've resulted in a nationwide curfew. Uh, there have been several confirmed deaths so far, and they just are not getting that much attention. 
The protests are described as resulting from an increase in cost of living and in particular rising fuel prices, but they are also being led by indigenous people. And so I am very curious, what is the connection? Why do we have indigenous people in Ecuador really leading these what seem to be economic protests? And so joining us from Ecuador now is Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik radio correspondent. Wyatt, thanks for being here. Hi, Michelle. Happy to be here. So uh, what is going on? Is it correct that these are these are protests against economic conditions in Ecuador, but that they are also being uh, led and organized by indigenous people and indigenous groups? That's right. Uh, these are economic protests for, first and foremost, but they are also, as you noted, being led by the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities of Ecuador. This is the largest uh, indigenous rights group in the country. Um, it's headed by a man named Leonidas Isa. And these, as, as you noted, have, have stretched on almost to two weeks now. Uh, protests are, are focused throughout the city of Quito and throughout the country of Ecuador. Uh, things have been turning pretty violent in the recent days, though. We saw the third death of the protests yesterday um, when an indigenous man in the Parque Los uh, El Arbolito was shot by police in the chest uh, with buckshot and uh, later died from, reportedly from, uh, excuse me, a, a penetrating chest wound, uh, according to Ecuadorian um, human rights activists and groups. So things have definitely gotten pretty heated. Yesterday, there was a massive amount of tear gas being uh, being uh, used throughout the city of Quito, especially uh, in that park I just mentioned. A lot of people have been pointing out that much of the tear gas seems to be expired with numbers of number of photos going up on social media showing uh, tear gas that has been expired. Uh, yeah, so this is obviously a dangerous thing to be doing. We know that uh, tear gas degrades over time and it becomes more volatile, uh, less controllable and other extremely harmful carcinogenic chemicals uh, develop as, as the chemical breaks down. Um, so obviously uh, that tells you a number of things. This, these protests have stretched out, uh, stretched resources on the police side uh, somewhat thin. We, uh, we, could, we could deduce from that. Um, but it also shows kind of the willingness to enforce the violence that uh, protesters have been condemning and pointing out uh, over the past several weeks, despite a lack of international media attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am guessing that, that part of the reason that these protests are being led by indigenous people is that, you know, as as in a lot of countries around the world, uh, the U.S. not an exception here. Uh, it is these communities that tend to be poorer, that tend to be uh, more marginalized and that would tend to be the the first and most significantly affected by fluctuations in the cost of living. Is there is there any is there additional maybe antagonism between these groups and the, the current government of Ecuador? Or is it really just, you know, uh, feeling the effects of these economic changes most acutely? Well, there's widespread disenchantment uh, with the Lasso government, uh, not just among the indigenous communities, which, you know, as you rightly pointed out, uh, are the primary victims of these increases, uh, these price increases, this inflation that's hit people throughout the world, uh, working people particularly, very hard. Uh, and frankly, from their perspective, uh, they simply don't see um, anything from part of the government that, that's happening to address this. 
so, you know, this is a an indigenous led protest, but it has wide support mm-hmm. among uh, other workers, uh, non-indigenous workers. Uh, there are it's it's kind of tough for me, actually. You know, I haven't run into too many people who have expressed um any real uh, anger with the the protesters themselves. Most Mm. of the anger that I see seems to be directed towards the government. Why haven't they uh, reached an agreement? Why haven't they been willing to sit down and negotiate yet? Mm. Um, And, you know, that that, uh, we might have to get into a bit of the weeds there, but uh, the protest leaders uh, were not willing to negotiate while the, the government continued to maintain this state of exception that mm. allows them extraordinary powers to kind of militarize the city that uh, looks to, to have now been defeated by the Congress, by the uh, Union por la Esperanza, or Union for Hope uh, party. Uh, so in the coming days, as this, uh, as this uh, and that's the party of, of former President Rafael Correa, in the coming days as this uh, law is, is removed from the books, we may see some movement, hopefully. Uh, the other angle here is the uh, there's now an, a as of uh, about an hour ago, I believe, there's now an impeachment motion uh, against President Guillermo Lasso. Um, not entirely clear yet whether or not that will have the needed uh, one, or 92 votes in the assembly uh, to approve that yet. But uh, that's definitely something that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks, or especially next week, uh, is when this, this whole uh, drama with the presidency should play out. Uh, let me ask you, I, I want to follow up and ask about the, the specific conditions of that impeachment. But what, you know, if we do see uh, leaders of this protest movement and the government sit down uh, to negotiate, what exactly are their demands? I saw today, it was sort of odd to me, I, I saw today that uh, reports that the government had granted protesters concessions, but the concession just appears to be access to a particular part of the Capitol, right? Not actual concessions uh, regarding the demands that sparked this movement uh, from the start. So what what would what are protesters going to be asking for in the short term here? Right. Yeah, that's that's correct. That was not a a significant concession there. Uh, That was that was closer uh, to or at least as as many protesters saw it, um, the that that was that was closer to an effort. I think people saw it as an effort to uh, basically tame the protests, uh, take some of the, the gas out of the tank and and uh, without really having done very much. Uh, these protests, uh, the protesters have 10 demands and they are, they are primarily economic. Uh, they have to do with introducing uh, price controls, um, things like uh, increasing the subsidy for, um, for gasoline prices. Uh, they are pretty much all bread and butter economic issues. Um, I'm, I'll see if I can pull up the specific list of demands, but they are uh, all very, very much economic-driven uh, issues, which is part of the reason that they have, uh, I think, enjoyed uh, fairly widespread support so far. Um, is simply because these are things that, while they primarily affect the indigenous population, everyone in Ecuador uh, is suffering from. So can you also tell us, you, you mentioned this possible impeachment. What what would be the, what's the impeachable offense here? Is it just, you know, uh, disappointment in the performance of Guillermo Lasso or is he being accused specifically of, of some kind of failure of duty or corruption? 
Yeah, I believe the specific language has to do with failure to address a grave social crisis. Mm. Um, there, there are two mechanisms by which, uh, by which presidents in Ecuador can be removed from power since uh, the 2008 constitution reforms. And the second one of those is by sort of a, the first is a sort of dereliction of duty. And the second is, a you know, kind of a, a, a failure to, to address a, a grave social crisis. So this would most likely fall under the second category. Um, but, you know, I think that the question then becomes, you know, there's 137 assembly members uh, and they need to get to 92 votes to be able to uh, pull off this kind of impeachment. There's a big question mark over, you know, how how successful that will be. And I'm sure, you know, as we speak, the uh, team of, of the sitting president, Guillermo Lasso, is doing everything he can to uh, forestall that, to prevent uh, people from switching sides. And, you know, certainly wouldn't surprise me if favors or other things are being promised, you know, as we speak mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to prevent that kind of thing from taking place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we started talking about these protests, uh, I noted that, you know, there are reports about them, but it's not as though they have gotten the front page treatment that uh, the protests in Colombia last year got. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, what, what kind of international response at all has there been to the protests? Mainstream media coverage here in the articles in The Washington Post um, and some of them have been a little bit more sympathetic, honestly, than I, I would expect. Uh, they still sort of kind of broadly adopt the the perspective of the ruling uh, government, which is that, you know, this is uh, paralyzing the, the country. And uh, but they don't they don't certainly don't go in for the hardcore kind of right wing uh, rhetoric that you hear pretty much exclusively on the TV here, which is that you know, these people are savages and they're terrorists and they want to just blow up the whole country and they don't even really, you know, have any real concrete demands. Um, it, it is interesting to see there is, is a more neutral coverage, I think, from international press than there is there and there is here, which is uh, actually kind of the case in a lot of Latin America where you have just a very unhinged kind of oligarch owned media not that we have much better media <laughs> we're from, but uh, that really, really goes in for this uh, kind of red meat, anti-communist stuff, mm-hmm. um, hardcore anti-indigenous rhetoric. Uh, so that's that's what you've seen nationally. Internationally, you just haven't seen uh, you just haven't seen much. You haven't seen enough. Um, it kind of shows you the the general priorities, and obviously, I think uh, the Western imagination is a little fixated on Europe now mm-hmm. um, and on other issues that uh, the opinion makers deem to be more relevant to Western audiences. Um, but it, you know, this is the kind of thing that does affect uh, the continent and affects all of us in, in one way or another. And that, uh, you know, it's another manifestation of the failures of neoliberalism and of people being uh, unwilling to take um, more of the same kind of punishment that they've been subjected to. We've seen, um, you know, we've seen reactions to this come at the ballot box in a number of countries recently too, you know, just last Sunday in Colombia, as, as uh, we talked about on this show. Um, so, you know, I don't think that's a trend that's going anywhere. And I think if anything, this, these protests just confirm that, um, increasingly governments are going to be held accountable by their people. Um, and if they're not willing to, to take accountability, then, 
um, it's, you know, more, looking increasingly possible that they could be effectively overthrown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, this this appears to be, uh, you know, my understanding is that this is a a pretty grassroots protest movement. But I do wonder, you know, about uh, the possibility of of sympathetic, uh, high profile politicians sort of in the wings who are either, you know, helping to organize at this point, who are sympathetic to the the causes the protesters espouse and to, you know, who would be in place if if you do have the government of Lasso or Guillermo Lasso himself impeached. Well, that's, uh, you know, it is an interesting point. And the uh, leader of the assembly would take over. And that is a a member of Union uh, por la Esperanza. That is a member of the the party of former President Rafael Correa. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, people could be forgiven for thinking, you know, there is some political motivation there. But uh, from the Assemblymen that I've spoken to, they are taking extraordinary care not to be uh, associated with this in the sense of, you know, not not putting them. They're not going out to the protest. They're not, uh, you know, really egging anybody on. They, mm-hmm. they definitely want to, to make it abundantly clear that this is not their uh, their doing. This is the doing of of uh, the Confederation of uh, of, uh, indigenous groups that, that has put this on, that continues to, ma- uh, man these barricades. And I mean, it's, it's very clear too. just going through these protests that that is who was there. That is who has been organizing this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's predominantly overwhelmingly indigenous people. Um, you know, and I, I, there certainly is that current in the right wing media here that, it's, you know, secretly Rafael Correa is behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, again, it's it's another expression of this kind of colonialist mentality that they have where, you know, these indigenous people couldn't possibly be planning this on their own. Mm-hmm. Somebody must have put them up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that's that part of that paternalism um, has led to, you know, it is, it's kind of hardened people's beliefs on the protester side This the, the treatment that they've received from the public, uh, not from the public, but rather from the from the media, I should say, and then from public officials mm-hmm. um, that, uh, you know, certainly doesn't seem to be if, if the point is to actually sit down and dialogue uh, very little of, of what, you know, the, the media, the oligarch owned media and the political establishment here is, has been uh, doing seems to be oriented towards that goal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if if these do result in some success, which, you know, doesn't seem to be unreasonable to predict if, as you say, uh, the government has agreed to rescind the state of emergency uh, to facilitate talks between protest leaders and the government, if they achieve, uh, you know, if they manage to uh, achieve some kind of change with this protest, how significant is this, especially, you know, looking at it in the context that you mentioned, we have the recent election uh, of a leftist in Colombia. Uh, before that, it was in Chile. You you have this sort of uh, tide of progressivism, we'll say, uh, in Latin America. Uh, how important is this going to be in Ecuador if they do get some kind of change out of their government? Well, it would be a huge shift, um, although I should note that the, the Lasso administration was not the one. They didn't concede to... Uh, to to remove that state of exception, that was done in the Congress, and that was okay. done by principally by um, Union por la Esperanza, uh, and and a number of I think Pachacutic and uh, Indigenous Party was involved as well. Uh, but that 
that you know I haven't seen anything so far that si- that signals that the lasso government is is willing to make concessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just uh, they 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 seems to be the momentum moving against them. Um, it seems to be that they're kind of on the back foot right now, mm-hmm. uh, and so they, they you know kind of in survival mode. So if they're able to, if the the protesters are able to succeed and effectively forcing. Um, forcing the ouster of this government, uh, I mean, it would be, it would be incredibly significant. Um, it would be a historic moment for indigenous movements in Ecuador and in Latin America. And then, you know, the, the economic ramifications, uh, if they're able to get an actual deal, you know, that would, that would be another major, um, major concession. It would be a major shift for, uh, in terms of kind of the power dynamics, I think in in Ecuador, but throughout the Andes more broadly, you just have, uh, especially since Bolivia, you really have this rising tide of kind of uh, indigenous nationalism that uh, I think has has realized its power. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Ecuador, you know, this is a country of 25% indigenous people. This is not a, a small group of people. This is uh, a, a huge chunk of of the population. Um, and, you know, is, I think there's rising awareness, too, from people who aren't indigenous, but that, first of all, you know, uh, price controls and, and increased gas subsidies would be of benefit to all of us. But second of all, that, uh, you know, Ecuador, like all Latin American countries, has a tremendous history of colonialism um, and now may be the time to address it. Mm-hmm. That was Sputnik correspondent Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks so much for joining us. I am sure we'll be checking back in with you uh, after the weekend to see how uh, these, you know, what kind of uh, results these protests achieve. Thanks for joining us, Wyatt. My pleasure. We've got a couple of last headlines to slide in here before we uh, get into a very long and very serious, very important legal conversation in our second hour. Uh, I missed this yesterday. Uh, The U.S. government is going to make some payments over Havana syndrome, apparently. Did you catch this story? I missed that, too. Yeah, this is yesterday afternoon. Uh, The Biden administration, according to The Washington Post and their anonymous sources, plans to pay some diplomats and intelligence officers uh, $100,000 to $200,000 each to compensate for the mysterious health problem known as Havana syndrome. This is what they're being told by congressional aides and a former official familiar with the matter. Now, we remember Congress pushed through a sort of special health insurance, health care provision for people supposedly suffering from Havana syndrome. So this is going to be on top of, you know, having special care and attention paid to their health and and a special compensation package set up for them. And I will add that. I'm starting to feel a little dizzy, John. (laughs) I'm starting to feel like I might... uh, yeah, it's, exactly. It could be crickets. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I will add that at the CIA for $2 a month, uh, we got something you called— You can sponsor a poor agent <laughs> overseas. We got something called dread disease insurance. Mm. And believe me, we were catching all kinds of different terrible dread diseases. I've had typhoid and Giardia and mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of Shigella. Giardia is a winner. Oh, tell me about it. A week in a Jordanian hospital will hook you up. <laughs> Um, but anyway, for two bucks, uh, they'll they'll pay for everything. Now, this is on top of the special like CIA only health insurance. Yeah. And you get a lump payment, 100 grand, 200 grand. Yep. Why not? 
Meanwhile, the rest of us uh, are going to have a lot of trouble getting an abortion, uh, much yeah. less health care for the children Best you might be forced that. to bear. I wanted to mention a story also that I, I fully intend to get into in more detail next week. But the Times had a piece out uh, today looking at fatal drug overdose data mm. for the first half of this year. And we appear to be on pace to break last year's record Jeez. of more than 100,000 people dying of drug overdoses. Uh, right now, the pace appears to be about... 300 people a week or about 12 people per hour, oh um, which is a, a crisis, I think, really worth worth getting into uh, and should trigger people to uh, reconsider our approach to this crisis since it does not appear to be working and maybe putting people in jail isn't the best uh, rehabilitative yeah. process. But I, yeah, I, I just wanted to highlight that. I wanted to add one thing, too. I, I, again, I'm sorry we're short on time. Apparently, uh, Donald Trump told uh, people close to him that this Supreme Court decision was a mistake and it was bad for the Republican Party. How do you like that? Yeah. Coming from the uh, the kettle. What a mess. We're going to take a break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we are going to be right back. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The U.S. Supreme Court this week has published some momentous decisions, the most controversial of which, of course, is this morning's repeal of Roe v. Wade in what's being called the Dobbs decision. The court also overturned a 111-year-old New York law that regulated the carrying of concealed weapons, and it weakened some of the law surrounding the Miranda decision. This is the most conservative Supreme Court in generations, and many observers believe that it is just getting started. We're going to talk about this with Bruce Fine. He joins us from Washington. He is a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Welcome back, Bruce. Thank you for inviting me. Bruce, before we get into these specific cases, I want to ask you what this court and its decisions are doing to the concept of precedent. Precedent doesn't seem to be important to this court is if there, for example, if there's no inherent right to privacy, what do those decisions mean for things like gay marriage or Title IX or as one of our earlier guests said today, uh, the Loving versus Virginia decision? Well, the court has, I think, turned stare decisis into uh, a restricted railroad ticket good for this day and train only. It has no standards by which it's utilized. Um, for example, in this particular case, overruling Roe v. Wade and, and Planned Parenthood Casey, they're overruling virtually 40 prior reaffirmations of the decision. Uh, and while they complain about Roe v. Wade and Casey having an, uh, uh, an incoherent standard of an undue burden on abortion, the standard that's articulated for overruling a prior precedent is not that it was wrongly decided, but it was really wrongly decided. So instead of getting, you know, a C minus, it's an F plus. Mm -hmm. See, you tell me that's not completely arbitrary. You'd make up anything. <laughs> really, what what tells you whether you really missed or you just missed by a little bit? You know, it's like, well, you struck out at the bat, 
but you missed by a long shot rather than by a short amount. So it's, you, you, you know, you get another swing, something like that. Uh, so the concept of stare decisis is clearly in the trash bin. And I think the court totally neglected to consider that after the Dobbs decision, they're going to have an entire docket asking them to overrule uh, literally cascades of cases, including, as you point out, the right to private decisions on access to contraceptives and uh, same-sex marriage, uh, well, loving in Virginia, uh, inter- inter- um, racial marriages, and things like that. And indeed, um, Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote a concurring opinion, said just that. He said we should get rid of all of these, uh, but we just had the abortion case now, but these are on my hit list wow. as soon as I get a chance. Now, one thing I, I need to offer this, because it is so startling, the gist of the decision uh, by uh, Justice Samuel Alito, and it had five justices, and then it was a concurrence by Chief Justice Roberts. It says that state legislatures can regulate um, abortion with the same laxness or same rigor that they can regulate jaywalking or bicycle pass. That is, they adopted the most forgiving standard of constitutional rational basis. Rational basis means any conceivable reason uh, why you would want to make a restriction. And they stated immediately that uh, protecting potential human rights clearly satisfies the rational basis test. So you think, well, what about uh, eggs and sperm that are uh, frozen? women who are having difficulty with fertility. Mm-hmm. Uh, are that potential human life, so you can't destroy those? You have to bring them to term. Um, and you could imagine in the future, you know, what, and, and moreover, remember the words here, the key words are potential human life. Potential, as you understand, can reach a wide range of circumstances. The court seemed to think it was potential only when the mother was impregnated. It's not clear that that should be the case. Why isn't the use of contraceptives blocking potential human life? Not inevitable, but remember the word is potential. Not necessarily, the woman be impregnated, but if it's a potential, then why shouldn't that be on the block to be prohibited? Right. So this is, and, and let me, and I, I, I hope I don't want to dominate the conversation, but in my view, what we really have here is a leftover of uh, male domination. Uh, the court seemed to suggest, well, this really isn't about uh, men and women because it's about pregnancy. Uh, well, you know, only women get pregnant. Uh, you're in uh, the birth room. You, even as the father, and I've been there. I'm sure <laughs> the mother does many times. <laughs> the burden on on the mom is a million times more than the dad, um, and the only only women are affected by restrictions on abortion, not men, because they're the ones that carry the fetus term. So by refusing to acknowledge the obvious, um, they then endorse this very, very lax uh, standard of review. Ordinarily, the court says if there's a discrimination based upon gender, it has to survive intermediate review. There has to be a substantial interest of the state that couldn't be advanced by you know, comparable means or something like that. But the rational basis of review is, is no review at all. Uh, and you can imagine that what, so what the court has authorized is a state law that says, um, a mother, uh, it can be forced to die, um, even if her life is at stake, in order to protect a fetus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no protection for 
pregnancies because of incest or rape or anything else. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, Bruce. I also I think that's a really good point, and I just want to stress it a little bit further. You know, you you don't even have to be experiencing a complicated pregnancy for your life to be at stake. Maternal mortality rates in the United States are uh, are a, you know an international embarrassment, right? And that's not to talk about the the consequences of a pregnancy, even if you if you don't die and everything goes fine. These are changes for the rest of your life. To yeah, the bodies of one category of people and not the other. And so to act as though pregnancy is somehow, uh, you know, pregnancy and giving birth is an event that happens once and then you turn the page on it and go back to life as it was before is just, uh, you know, I was going to say it's comic, except it's very, very sad. You know, it's absurd. It's an absurd line of thinking. It is. It is completely absurd. And say the rational basis test, that means anything goes. I do think that uh, although you find some language that hedges, you know, the impact, that certainly is now arguable that a state uh, could make it a crime for a woman to depart the state, use the right to interstate travel to a, another state that uh, had lax or had. Gen- I mean, that's what Texas is trying to do. Abortion, and yeah. the the argument would be, well, yeah, you have a right to interstate travel, but the court emphasized literally fifty occasions. And I read there are 216 pages in all the opinions. I read all of them. 50 occasions. Well, potential human rights is unique. You can't place any any measure on it. So therefore, if it's potential human rights, you know, human life, the legislation can do whatever they want. Let me add this: that the court really has a very very cramped view of what the role of the judiciary is. You remember that we have a constitution because uh, the framers were distrustful of simple majority rule. They were uh, yes. of the legislative branch. Yes. The whole purpose of a constitution is to place limits on majority rule, not to succumb to it. And yet the court's entire analysis is based upon, well, what were legislatures doing with regard to prohibiting or banning abortion? That's not supposed to be your job. It's not supposed to ratify what the legislatures are doing. You're supposed to reexamine and see whether it's within the constitutional domain of justice, which is the end of civil liberty. As James Madison said, he's more than a fringe view since he drafted most of the Constitution. And and the court seems to have lost complete sight of that fact. And they did the same thing in the gun case from New York. Right. Oh, so it's just the legislatures do this and that, and therefore, unless the legislatures you know, protected this method of, uh, of gun carry or, or prohibited this method of gun carry, uh, then you have a right to do it. So why are you looking at the legislature? <laughs> You're supposed to act independently. That's why you're judges. That's why you have life tenure. The other thing that's very egregious is that there's this repeated refrain that now the abortion issue is returned to the people. The abortion issue was never removed from the people. There's something called constitutional amendments. We've had 28 of them since 1791. Uh, and we've had constitutional amendments for 18-year-old voting rights. We had uh, prohibition and then the repeal of prohibition, the or amendments, et cetera. It is true you have to have supermajorities uh, in order to enact an amendment, but nothing the Supreme Court does is shielded from a constitutional amendment, which is enacted by the people. The president isn't even involved. Uh, and so when you look at uh, what was there any clamor for a constitutional amendment after Roe v. Wade, and remember, there's a long time. Roe was 1973 here. We're like 50 years later. None. I know, having worked in the Reagan administration, no, we'll go out there and say Roe v. Wade, but no, we're not going to push this in the legislative branch. We don't want it. 
In some sense, it was cynical. Well, we want abortion to be an issue out there. We don't want to resolve it. We want to we'll learn our base and we'll we'll trumpet uh, things that make them pleased. Right. No, we actually don't want to vote on it. Right. That's way too hard. So it's all very, very cynical. Uh, but it goes back in part to my view that the court is about as naive. Mr. Smith goes to Washington on what motivates legislatures to act. You, th- you think that they sit down and contemplate philosophically whether a potential human life, you know, is a life that's, that we must save or something like that? Huh. Uh, they look up the votes. They look up, you know, who's lobbying them, this or that. How can, I, how can I get votes? These are not deliberative people. And that's why the framers wanted the judges, which it, despite their imperfections, they at least have, you know, a judicial temperament and come at these issues with a more balanced, you know, less uh, biased and distorted judgment that is regularly there in legislative bodies. I want to ask you, Bruce, about this uh, concealed weapons uh, case. Uh, This uh, New York's law on carrying concealed weapons was passed in the year 1911. And it was a result of a of a series of shootouts that had taken place uh, in um, in the Bronx, where several young children were killed. A couple of five year olds were killed. And um, it's not telling people that they can't have concealed carries uh, concealed weapons. Rather, it's telling them that they have to apply for a concealed carry permit. Well, if. Abortion should be returned to the states. Why is gun control not allowed to go back to the states? Why would the court even rule on a that's, on a case like this? Totally results oriented court. It has no principles whatsoever. Uh-huh. What about returning to the states? How come states? And you know, this court has repeatedly said that um, if a state wants to subsidize private education but doesn't want to be in the business of promoting religion, it can you know that the states should be able to decide. Okay. If you're a religious school, no, you don't qualify because we have an interest in not making, you know, religion part of our politics. Right. I think for a certain amount, the court says, no, you can't do that. You have to. It's constitutionally required that you give the religious schools that they was pursuing a theological degree the same money. Right. Why is that? Now you're taking away that choice from the states. So this idea that they're all, you know, swooning over democracy and they don't want to tie the people's hands. It's a bunch of garbage is what it is. Yeah. Um, and they are, uh, they're, I say, they're completely result oriented. All I can say, and I go back and repeat it because it's so shocking, that the court says you can regulate abortion like you can regulate, you know, a contract to lease, uh, you know, an apartment, mm-hmm. or to regulate bike paths, mm-hmm. national parks. <laughs> I said, okay, you know, that's the human right that's at issue. Going back to abortion for a minute, I want to, I want to try to tie up a couple of loose ends. On this, uh, now that that Roe has been overturned, at least half the states have enacted or will enact new laws prohibiting or severely restricting abortion. So in your view, is this now no longer a legal issue? Is this now a political issue to be decided state by state? Does Congress get involved? Are we going to continue to fight over abortion? So I don't think it resolves everything. I mean, I say one of the things that's going to happen, in my view, uh, is that you will get states that will uh, prohibit abortions even if necessary to save the life of the mother, uh-huh. uh, making the state complicit in my view murder. But it doesn't. This decision doesn't resolve anything because we still have this issue of traveling interstate travel to a state with what we'd call liberal abortion laws, 
Right. And the state that, I mean, uh, until this decision, it was a slam dunk. You can't do that. The case called Doe versus Bolton. It was a companion case to Roe v. Wade where the court held that, no, a state can't prohibit a woman from traveling there and, and obtaining an abortion you know, consistent with that state's laws. Uh, so, uh, but I think that's all cast in doubt uh, based upon this court's uh, ruling that uh, potentially human life trumps everything else in the entire world, which is the gist of what the court said. Uh, let me ask you about this uh, this court decision to force states to finance private schools or parochial schools in some cases. The circumstances seem to be narrow, but does this decision open the door for public financing now of religious schools where where no door existed in the past? Uh, the The case was centered on a on a school in Maine, it turned out there were no other nearby public schools, but why not then just build a public school? Mm-hmm. Why force the state to fund a, a private school? I think that, I, unfortunately, I don't think that this most recent decision was a dramatic uh, uh, alteration from past where this court has been highly, highly, highly protective of what's said to be religious freedom. Remember, this is a court that said if you required religiously affiliated hospitals to send a postcard in uh, to the government saying we don't want to have our insurance cover abortions um, and therefore um, you know you should take the somebody else should you know, cover the procedure that sending the postcard in was a staggering insult to their religious freedom and knocked it out <laughs> so postcard I mean it is utterly ridiculous um, so this particular school it doesn't require them to fund uh, parochial schools. Uh, it just says that if you're going to fund any private schools, you got to fund all of them. Mm-hmm. All or nothing. Obviously, that's a, you know, a deterrent to funding any private schools. But it's nothing in the decision says that a state has to fund any private okay. uh, educational institution. I think it's interesting that the question of religious freedom and religious funding is coming up here because, of course, one of the higher profile challenges to uh, abortion restrictions, this one is in Florida, is by a Jewish group that says uh, restricting rights to abortion violates their freedom of religion because their religion requires uh, a woman to have an abortion if her life is threatened in in these other cases. You know, I think I know the answer to this question, but, you know, if you say we have a Supreme Court that is extremely sensitive to questions of religious freedom, how do you think they would respond to a challenge to, to this decision? or to a state law by a Jewish group that says your laws are infringing on my freedom uh, to practice my religion. They would say that um, your right to practice freedom religion is trumped by the state's interest in protecting Uh, human life. I have not a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. They'd say. Yeah. um, That, you know, you can't do religion. If your religion said, well, I think we have to do Ritual murder, there's no way. And because the court basically said that a state can conclude that extinguishing a potential human life is the equivalent of murder, there's no way that that case would succeed. Bruce, you've read all these decisions. Um, One of the things that has that has struck me over the last couple of days was the analysis that in the gun decision that Justice Alito's uh, writing, his opinion or his concurrence, I should say, with the majority opinion written by Clarence Thomas, was was described as caustic and mean-spirited. Uh, it says that he uh, he dropped any pretense of decorum 
for example, in an analysis that I read. Is this unusual? Why the anger in a case like this? Well, the anger is awakened uh, because, uh, you know, a justice will feel if they're reasoning and they're attacked. Um, they, uh, they feel that somehow um, uh, they have to strike back. Now, in particular, with regard to Justice Alito, he was responding to the dissent of Stephen Breyer. Oh. And, through and, 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 and he cataloged all the horrors that came from gun violence. And Alito castigated uh, Breyer. So, well, that's, you know, you're just trying to, you know, uh, uh, make the issue, uh, cloud the issue, if you will. <laughs> Ignoring the fact that, it, yeah, it's the gun violence that causes legislators to enact the statute, Mr. Alito. You know, why wouldn't you? If you're trying to understand the political process, why wouldn't you understand that? So he was responding and saying, well, this is ridiculous. Breyer is trying to, to distract the, the true attention to the words of the Second Amendment that uh, at least Alito read with Thomas to mean you got to go into a historical archaeological expedition and what regulation of guns were in 13th century Great Britain now to our case in the Supreme Court. It literally is, is crazy. If I'm, if I'm a practitioner, look at this. Yeah, a lot of historians on guns are going to be in high demand of lawyers because the court basically said, Justice Thomas, that's the only thing we care about. If there's any regulation of guns whatsoever. You have to show that you've got to trace back the history of regulation to Middle Ages Great Britain and to see whether it was common or not. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I mean, these guys, they, they've never worked in a lower court. They're not trial lawyers, that's for sure. And Clarence Thomas, I don't think he ever practiced law in his entire life. He doesn't know how crazy this burden is on practicing lawyer and lower court judges. It is totally, completely unworkable. Uh, finally, or not finally, because I have a question after this, but uh, Bruce, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals made a decision this week that allows states to force contractors to sign what amounts to loyalty pledges to the state of Israel. So if you boycott, if you support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, BDS against Israel, and you don't sign a pledge rebuking it. Uh, you cannot do business in 33 states. Or if you do do business, you have to offer the state a 20% discount. Uh, can you explain the constitutionality of these loyalty pledges? Do you see this issue eventually going to the Supreme Court? Yes. I mean, that's, that is um, clearly, in my view, unconstitutional. It's called unconstitutional condition. Think, think of this. Suppose state passed a law that said, if you want a contract with a state, you cannot criticize any member of the Republican Party. Indeed, you have to wear a mega hat. <laughs> America great again. <laughs> right? Is that right. But legitimately, obviously a state procuring goods and services has an interest in getting the most um, uh, efficient and, 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 and uh, lowest cost product. But what is the state interest? And in, especially the states who don't even have foreign policy about trying to muzzle no political right. debate in speech, which is what BDS is all around. Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> it, it's an example, I think, uh, John, of, you know, our culture really is, is becomes so compromised. And, and part of this, I say, is, is due because we've come, you know, an empire, and it's just the strong do what they can, the weak suffer mm -hmm. what they must. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the court is not immune from that cultural pressure. And that's that's where we are today. I mean, that's that would have been viewed as heresy, you know, 25 years ago, a, a law like that.
Bruce, so many Americans have been uh, glued to the TV to watch these January 6th committee hearings. I think that they've been fascinating. My, for, for me personally, I, I'm just enthralled by what we're learning here. And one of the things that's been kind of a surprise, you and I have talked about this offline, is the role that Ginny Thomas, uh, the wife of Clarence Thomas, has played in trying to get the election overturned. She was texting all day that day with uh, with uh, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff. She was intervening with election officials in Arizona and in Georgia. She was talking to Sean Hannity at Fox News and texting with members of the United States Senate. Uh, whether she's committed a crime or not, I have no idea. And I'm sure that if she has, the committee's going to finally make a referral to the Justice Department and the Justice Department will uh, investigate her. And we, we've both made the point uh, in writing that Ginny Thomas is not just some nut who happens to be married to a Supreme Court justice. She's a highly respected attorney and is the former general counsel of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So she's actually a player here in Washington and she has access to these people. Uh, with that said, Supreme Court justices in the past have resigned over less than this. Do you see Ginny Thomas causing a longer term political problem for her husband? Or do you think that in today's political environment, this is just going to blow over? Uh, well, first, I'll add a footnote to your observation. She also communicated with John Eastman. And with John Eastman, which may be the most important thing, John Eastman is a former, well, not only was he the White House, one of the White House attorneys for Donald Trump, he's a former clerk to her husband on the Supreme Court. Yeah. I think that Jenny Thomas probably has violated, you know, norms of professional responsibility. Right now, I don't think she crossed the threshold of criminality, um, is too removed from actually doing something. But in terms of a, you know, a lawyer has an obligation to uphold and not do anything that tarnishes or shakes confidence in the fair administration of justice. And that means you have to be concerned about optics as well as reality. And there's nobody in their right mind who wouldn't see Jenny Thomas, and I doubt whether they want to be crass, you know, that she sleeps in a separate bedroom in a separate house with Clarence Thomas, that she's not talking with Clarence Thomas about what she's doing. Right. Uh, you know, uh, at her medic seal. Now, of course, there's you know, marital privilege, so no one's ever going to get at that. Um, a good point. You know, we'll never know, but she, as a lawyer, should say, well, I, no, I can't do this because the, it'll, it'll create an appearance you know, of bias in, 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 in Justice Thomas uh, and uh, cease and desist uh, immediately. That was the voice of Bruce Fine, who joined us from Washington, D.C. He is a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Thanks for joining us, Bruce. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take another short break and come back with another guest. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we had a tech conversation planned that I am going to switch the order of. We wanted to talk about a new report into uh, potential vulnerabilities in the blockchain and how it might not be quite as decentralized as you think. We are going to talk first about Facebook enabling data collection by anti-abortion clinics, uh, because this is a topic that is a lot more urgent than it was uh, about 24 hours ago. Joining us for these conversations is Chris Garafa, they are a privacy expert and technologist. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Let's get into Facebook first. This was a report by the Center for Investigative Reporting and the Markup. It looked into Facebook and found that the website is already collecting data about people who visit the websites of crisis pregnancy centers. These pregnancy centers are often misleadingly kind of presented as as health clinics, but they are mostly run by religious organizations that intend to dissuade people from having abortions. And so this analysis looked at the websites of nearly 2,500 of these crisis pregnancy centers and found that nearly 300 shared visitor information with Facebook. This might be extremely sensitive information, uh, like, for example, whether a person was considering abortion or looking to get emergency contraceptives or pregnancy tests. More than a third of the website sent data to Facebook when someone made an appointment for abortion consultation or pre-termination screening. And at least 39 sites sent Facebook details such as the person's name, email address or phone number. And so now Facebook says it is against its own policies to send this sensitive information through its business tools and that it has a system designed to filter out such sensitive data. Uh, Can you talk to us about how much faith we should have in these filters? Oh, absolutely no faith whatsoever. (laughs) Facebook is a data company and it's an advertising company and they want to have as much information as possible. And if that means that they're collecting information from these corrupt crisis pregnancy centers uh, in order and, you know, then letting others target you based on that information, they are going to do that until we do something about it, until it is made illegal to do so. Mm -hmm. I think Big picture today, I'm thinking about a tweet that came out from uh, Eva Galperin, who is the director of cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And what they said was the difference between now and the last time that abortion was illegal in the United States is that we live in an era of unprecedented digital surveillance. And I think that's really such a key thing as we go forward in the next hours, days and weeks, as not not only as people are going to be in the streets and fighting back and, you know, saying that we're not going to give up. The Supreme Court, you know, can't just take this right from us, Mm -hmm. but also as people are navigating the need for reproductive justice services where they may or may not be legal at this point in Mm -hmm. so many states as of today and, uh, you know, in the coming weeks. We have to be so aware that it's not just a matter now of, you know, as it was in other cases in the past, you know, the police looking at your mail, right, to see if you're getting contraceptives. It's now a case of police getting access. And I think we've even talked about this to your fertility app to Mm -hmm. see if you missed a period while you were traveling. And then Mm -hmm. did you travel to a state that provides abortion? Because if you're when you go home, that could be used against you. 
Or in states like Texas, you know, already, uh, you know, Texas wants to criminalize anyone helping someone else access an abortion. So this kind of information is extremely relevant to anyone who might want to make a quick $10,000 by bringing a case against someone they can prove, uh, you know, helped their neighbor get an abortion, uh, you know, in another state. Right. And there are already emergency response networks being set up. And of course, that is nothing new today. They have been uh, being set up for a while to help people travel from one state to another. And I think that's an amazing thing. But my concern is that a lot of these are being hosted on places like private Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. And Facebook will hand over information about what's going on on its services because they have all of that information uh, to law enforcement if requested. Just because it's a private Facebook group doesn't mean that Facebook can't see the content of it. So we need to be extremely cautious and aware when we're organizing here, when we're, you know, not just organizing politically, but literally organizing to provide people with the access to medical care that we, you know, the digital surveillance system, the entire surveillance state, whether it's the, the state apparatus or their partners in private industry like Facebook and Amazon and all of those, uh, they're going to be used and working against us. Mm-hmm. Everything we do online can be used against us, and it is so critical. And another thing, you know, just as I've been watching Twitter today, I want to just put a, a warning out there, too, to people. We are all angry, and we are right to be angry. At the same time, be careful about how you're expressing that anger, mm-hmm. because The police, the FBI, they are watching these tweets, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the posts that you're making. uh, And they certainly can, you know, use that against you. But again, it goes back to this whole idea of the difference today is that we are in this, uh, you know, global panopticon of surveillance. Mm -hmm. Um, And literally everything we do can be scrutinized unless you're using services like Signal or ProtonMail and, you know, encrypted communications. Yeah, which most people, you know, have before this had no reason to download and no reason to be on. It's not also just crisis uh, pregnancy centers. You know, we have another report that found the same technology called uh, Metapixel tracking the data of patients at many major hospitals when they tried to schedule medical appointments. Right. And so, you know, this raises concerns about HIPAA violations. And right now, of course, they are focused on uh, abortion services in particular. But if we do see attempts to restrict access to contraception, you know, this could also be, you know, incredibly useful. And so I wonder, you know, this is not just these uh, uh, sort of quack crisis pregnancy centers. This is actual hospitals using uh, using this technology sometimes. Yeah. And even just taking out, you know, the the you know, the the situation going on today, the Mm -hmm. immediate just thinking about Really, really thinking about the way that, you know, a hospital is sending whatever you search for, for example, to Facebook, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not even if it's illegal, but what if it's just a personal thing? You're looking for a doctor for a personal medical condition, something that you don't talk with people maybe outside your family about because it's none of their business. Uh, you don't talk to about it at work, whatever it is. That information is still being aggregated and gathered and sh- and stored, and somebody will find a way to target ads to you based on that. And when you see those, you're going to start wondering, how did they know that I needed this medication or that I have this condition that's being addressed by this doctor who's advertising to me? Mm-hmm. And that's really – it's it's not a situation we should be in, right, where we have mm-hmm. to wonder how these websites and these vendors are targeting ads to us so very specifically. Specifically. 
Yeah, and I do wonder, you know, right now Facebook wants us to um, trust it when it says, no, 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 we're regulating ourselves. We we are not going to collect that information, which you say, I think quite correctly, we should absolutely not believe. And so, you know, what what how could we get better protections than don't worry, guys, we are we are filtering ourselves. Well, we need legislation on this. We mm-hmm. absolutely need federal legislation to prevent this kind of information gathering, not just medical, but just overall. Uh, But we certainly could start with medical and financial data. I mean, Mm -hmm. that would be a great start. You know, Biden gave a press conference just about an hour ago and sort of hinted at the possibility of some kind of regulation, but it was very vague unless you, you know, knew what to listen for in it. Um, and, And again, he's, you know, instructing agencies to consider things and to study. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we've had all of this time. We know the dangers of these systems. We Mm -hmm. know the dangers of these practices. We don't need more studies. What we need is action. And I unfortunately do not see Congress uh, or the White House actually taking any kind of direct action uh, right now. We're Mm -hmm. already seeing that they're just saying, you know, yes, your privacy is important. So vote for us in November. It's going to be so yes. important. Um, I think that is such an insult, honestly, to people who have who are paying any kind of attention to this. But we need federal legislation. We need that kind of regulation on these giant tech companies and the, the smaller data brokers that are the ones who you know really buy and resell and share this stuff as well. You know, it's interesting, Chris. I mean, I absolutely, I, I agree. And yet, you know, every time you have a, a tech head appearing before Congress, what really jumps out is how little so many of our representatives seem to grasp how this industry works, you know what I mean? And just what they would be regulating and, and what that would mean. And so then you get a lot of jokes about, you know, old people being out of touch. But it's also true that particularly in the Democratic Party, there is a lot of um, transfer between the, that party and and Silicon Valley and some of these big tech companies. And so you have to wonder, why is there no expertise coming toward our representatives from this, you know, sort of obvious, um, very warm relationship between this industry and the party. You have to think that, uh, you know, some of that is, is probably deliberate. Oh, it's absolutely deliberate. But look at what happens when you have, you know, Facebook or Apple or Amazon or whichever company, you know, their executives go and they they testify at a hearing, right? They're mm-hmm. called up for a hearing and they say they always say, yeah, we're willing to to regulate and we'd like to be part of that discussion. They want to be part of the discussion because they know that their money is going to go pretty far in making those regulations work for them, mm-hmm. not for the people who are demanding this regulation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they do very occasionally they will have tech experts come and it gets absolutely no attention because they're not Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. not Sundar Pichai. Uh, And they really get very it gets very little attention. Look, I don't know how an internal combustion engine works, Mm -hmm. but I would certainly pay more attention to an engineer who tells me how it works than I would to the CEO of Ford, Mm -hmm. who clearly has, you know, a reason for saying what he's going to say, Mm -hmm. a financial reason. Whereas the engineer, I think you can be a little more trustworthy that that engineer is going to be uh, a technical expert in their field. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. All right, Chris, while we have you, let's take a little look at this uh, report about cryptocurrency and the blockchain. 
Cryptocurrency has mostly been in the news recently uh, for dropping quite dramatically in value, uh, kind of across the board, and for you know maybe being poised to get its own first real regulatory framework. Uh, but the basis for these currencies, blockchain technology, came in for criticism from DARPA this week in a report that found that this supposedly decentralized network is not quite as decentralized as uh, we all might believe. And so I, I wanted to ask what centralization means for security and how lay people should should understand this report. Uh, the report was commissioned by DARPA. It was written by this cybersecurity research firm called Trail of Bits. And Trail of Bits said, you know, this unintended centralization, whether you are talking about certain internet providers handling most Bitcoin traffic uh, or, you know, uh, pools of, of miners sort of gathering together in the same corner of the internet, uh, this centralization does create opportunities for people to manipulate the public ledgers that document movement on the blockchain. And so, you know, the response to this report that I have seen has basically been, yeah, these are these are valid criticisms, but they're not really pressing in the real world. Uh, and I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And also, you know, they might not be pressing now, but if our 401ks are all going to be holding a chain link or something next year, you know, we might find them pressing a year from now. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with the assessment that I've seen a lot of people say that these are very theoretical uh, issues right now. And th in many cases they are, but at the same time, what's theoretical today could be very, very real tomorrow. If somebody figures out a way to, you know, take advantage of an obscure or difficult uh, vulnerability in mm -hmm. a cryptographic, uh, system, uh, or one of these uh, decentralized systems. So it is certainly something that we should be, we should be paying attention to and aware of. And working to fix if possible or adjusting the technology if not. You know, ultimately, you can't have a completely decentralized system that more than two people are going to use. You have to have some way of coming to consensus. You have to have some way of uh, agreeing on modes of communication, the protocols you're using, the language you're using. Um, that just doesn't particularly work, uh, you know, as well as, you know, they, they claim uh, when it comes to, you know, can one person, can one group, one entity uh, set up a whole bunch of nodes and really take over a system mm -hmm. with bad information? And that is possible. It would take a lot of uh, a lot of concerted effort and work. But, it, you know, it, and we haven't seen that happen yet, but it is certainly a, something that is not out of the question. So I think the questions that that do come up in this report and I, I've, I've read it earlier this week, I think it's it's worth paying attention to and there need to there do need to be uh, I think computer scientists and policy experts who are considering the actual risks that are posed and how they could be exploited in the future and I mean I, I am wondering if there is any uh any attention paid to this vulnerability in any of the regulatory frameworks that we have seen offered over the past couple of weeks for you know how to treat this new asset not that I'm aware of. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't read fully the, the frameworks that have been set forward, but um, I have not seen any kind of coverage about anything uh, related to these kind of issues being anywhere addressed in those. It's really um, th those frameworks are really about the financial regulation mm -hmm. uh, instead of the regulation of the tech of the, the technology side. Mm -hmm. That was privacy expert and technologist Chris Garafa. Chris, I know you have recently been sharing some very relevant interviews about what organizations have been funding anti-abortion efforts around the world. So I wonder if you'd like to uh, tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work. 
Certainly, I'm the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast for Covert Action Magazine. Uh, if you just go to my Twitter, actually, CMG, I recently just posted the link to an interview we did in April with Jessica mason Piclo of Rewire News Group talking about the dark money behind the global attacks on reproductive justice. Mm-hmm. Chris Garoff, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and uh, come right back with the news from Georgia, not the country. (laughs) Wait, not the state, the country. Damn it. I messed up my own joke. We're going to take a break here. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. More than 100,000 people are demonstrating in the streets of Tbilisi, Georgia, in support of that country's European Union application. The country was denied candidate status this week at the EU summit in Brussels. Demonstrations began on June 16th, continued on June 20th, and are taking place again today. They've been peaceful, but the U.S. Embassy in Tbilisi is warning Americans to avoid the area. An opposition spokesperson said that opposition parties would join with labor unions, civil society organizations, and journalists to form a new popular movement to demand that the government do more to press for EU membership. We're joined by Sputnik News Washington Bureau Chief Mindia Gavashelli, who is in Tbilisi, Georgia. Welcome, Mindia. Hi, John. Good to be with you. Good to have you, Mindia. Tell us a little bit about these demonstrations. The crowds seem to be huge, but they're peaceful. Uh, Do you expect that to hold? Are Georgians angry at the government for its failure to make more progress on EU membership, or are they angry at the EU for failing to to act on the application? Well, it depends on who you ask, because the Georgian government said that it's being punished for not Uh, opening a second front against Russia uh, in the war uh, with Ukraine. Uh, But the opposition says that uh, the Georgian government failed to abide by agreements with the European Union, and therefore uh, it's being punished by not... uh, receiving this candidacy status. Well, if... If they haven't abided by agreements, do you think that's an easy fix? Is there something that the government can do to change that and then have the the EU move forward on the application? Well, the government actually played it quite smart because they said that uh, they are ready to uh, change things and they are ready within six months to make progress on the conditions that the European Union set for Georgia to receive the candidacy, and they want to do that by December. But the thing is that one of the main uh, demands of the European Union is to overcome political polarization in Georgia, and good luck with that, because society is really polarized. Uh, just just imagine if someone told Republicans and the Republicans and Democrats to overcome political polarization. Would that? <laughs> Yeah, good luck. 
we, we mentioned earlier in the show that six Balkan countries also are not making much in the way of progress in their applications. Uh, but that is for uh, for political reasons. Georgians insist that they're Europeans and the Europeans seem to have a different position. Do you think it's the uh, the, the fact that Georgia is is in the Caucasus, that it's in Asia, uh, has anything to do with the EU's failure to move forward on the application? No, I don't think so. Actually, the European Union didn't say that. Uh, well, actually, for the first time in, uh, in in years, the European Union said that Georgia clearly belongs in the European Union. Mm-hmm. So that was a positive that the government took from it and tried to uh, present it as a victory to the Georgian society. But the problem, and Georgia has been a leader on the post-Soviet uh, space, in many reforms. I I can give you an example from my personal experience. Just yesterday, I was in the public service hall with a friend who needed to get a passport. And it took her an hour to get picture taken right there, get her biometrics taken by the right there, uh, Mm -hmm. her paperwork done, even though there's no paperwork because everything is electronic. And... She was done, like I said, within an hour, and now she can either go and pick it up or just wait for it to come uh, via post. So many European countries cannot achieve those things. In terms yeah. Of- mm-hmm. I mean, imagine our DMVs or social security offices, for God's sake. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's a question of really overcoming political polarization and uh, specifically the European Union insists on the judicial risk. Sorry, Mindia, are we to understand then that Georgia's political polarization is worse than Ukraine's right now? Where uh, political parties are being are being outlawed and their leaders have been, you know, taken into custody? Is that, you know, is that a fair assessment? (laughs) <laughs> Michelle, you need to ask the European Union. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As, yeah, Europeans may, made it clear that uh, the candidacy status for Ukraine and Moldova was a clearly political move. They are not going, like, they are not ready for it. And if everything was normal, uh, business as usual, they, they would never get that status right now. And again, the EU made it clear that both those countries are not going to join the European Union anytime soon. But again, it was more of a declaration rather than, you know, a real move towards EU membership. Mindia, it seems to me that the government wants to be in the European Union. The opposition wants to be in the European Union. So is the fact that the European Union is so slow to move forward, a political threat to the government? If the government can't show tangible process, for example, in Georgia's EU membership application, would the government then be in danger of falling, perhaps? It might be, because as you said, the crowds here in Belize are huge. Huge. How many people, yeah, how many people came here today, but the central Rustavelli Avenue is full of people. And, um, you know, the, the, the mood is one of the disappointments. But on the other hand, 
people are demanding from the government to fulfill those conditions and get that status. And both the prime minister and the president uh, said that they will work hard towards achieving those goals. But like I said, on the other hand, the opposition is trying to uh, get points because of this decision. And they, it's clearly in their interest to continue playing this game and demand new elections. So, you know, who knows what's gonna, who knows what's gonna happen next because uh, the Georgians are known for being hot-headed and yeah. revolting mm. when they're dissatisfied with their government. So uh, today, they, uh, the speakers at the rally said that they will gather again next week. And if the government doesn't fulfill their demands, then they're going to continue protest actions uh, indefinitely. Okay, we're going to leave it there. That was the voice of Mindia Gavashelli, who is the Sputnik News Washington Bureau Chief. He is currently in Tbilisi, Georgia. You're listening to Political Misfits. We are not going to take another break. We're running a little bit short on time, and there's so much news today yeah, we have that we really have to— pretty important headlines to share. I also just have to say, uh, House Democrats— Standing on the Capitol steps singing God Bless America as a response to this Supreme Court decision is. Uh, okay, so now I'm already worse, mad and now you're going to make nothing, me more mad. Worse than nothing, you uh, performative. Nincompoops is what I could come up with. It's not a swear you know, word. I mean, come on. Anyway, I, there's more about, important headlines to get to than that, I, but I just cannot believe. They think it's that sickening. is somehow re- reassuring to people. I've written about God Bless America several times in op-eds. God Bless America is a Broadway show tune mm-hmm. that was adopted by both the Democratic and Republican parties as their party songs for their 1932 conventions. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the country. It's not a national anthem. It's a Broadway show tune, people, and it just, just makes me so angry. Let's not have a religious response let's to not. a sort of theocratic ruling. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, hey, John, you know what we do have, though? We have a, a pretty lukewarm gun control bill. It passed the Senate earlier this week. It passed the Senate yesterday. It has just passed the House. Uh, let's see. What would this do? It would enhance... Background checks for prospective gun buyers aged 18 to 21. It would require juvenile records, including mental health records, beginning at age 16, be vetted for any disqualifying material. It would incentivize states to pass their own red flag laws that would allow guns to be temporarily confiscated. Uh, It would tighten a ban on domestic abusers buying firearms. It would strengthen laws against straw purchasing and trafficking. So, again, you know. And, and. It will encourage school districts to spend more money on security. Oh, great. That's the solution to everything. Uh Security specifically. Honestly. Like now we just have to Because it's been working so well so far. Yeah. Everyone's got to go to school and just uh, through the demilitarized zone to get to your classroom that's not being funded anymore because all the money's going to a religious school down the street. Ah, well, God. let me add one I other mean, thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene today on the floor of the House said that children should undergo firearms training. I'm, that's just that's that's how we're going to keep our schools safe. She actually said that. And then Jamie Raskin got up to mock her to her face and asked if she supported the arming of fetuses. Yeah. 
That's what? That's what we've come oh, to. Oh, God. Yeah. Who's who kidding? And I mean, again, in contrast to the Democrats standing on the Capitol steps singing God Bless America, you oh, also have footage so of police mad. police in, in riot gear with shields marching toward the Supreme Court, uh, lest protesters there get a little bit unruly. you got to make sure you have the, the fully militarized uh, Capitol Police yeah, out in force. Of course. Yeah. That uh, very bizarre contrast there. What else did we have today that we needed to get to, John? Uh, there are a couple of uh, things. Do we have enough time? We still have about four minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Democrats. Well, let, let me add another thing. Uh, I mentioned uh, in the last half hour that Donald Trump has been telling people privately today that uh, this Roe v. Wade, uh, this decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was a mistake mm-hmm. and that this is going to be bad for the Republican Party. I mean, uh, what, what, what did he think was going to happen? He told us that he was going to overturn Roe v. Wade if he were to be elected president. So the, the country elected him president. He had three Supreme Court nominees and they overturned Roe v. Wade. And he says, oh, oh, oh. They overturn Roe v. Wade. This I mean, could be a problem. Donald Trump never, you know, Donald Trump got elected because he acted as though he was something other than, uh, you know, a, a puppet for traditional long term right wing projects by the yeah. Koch brothers, by the Federal Society, et cetera. Yeah. And I don't know that they, you know, I'm not even sure what his understanding was of his role. But I think, you know, the people who found him refreshing and found his honesty on U.S. imperialism and foreign policy refreshing. Sure. OK, but he, his entire presidency uh, was actually, aside from his own, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies in, in communication, mm-hmm. was a very standard, successful Republican presidency. Yeah. You know, and so that's what you got. Right. Whether or not, uh, you know, you understood that what was underneath the occasional moment of truth uh, yeah, about our foreign policy. A broken that, clock can be right twice a day. Sure. And of course, you know, the, the Republicans, the, the traditional right wing forces allied uh, themselves behind Trump because they knew they were going to get what they wanted through him. And that's yes. what they did. Yes, that that's exactly right. I want to add one other thing. Mm-hmm. We've talked in our politics segments over the last several weeks about uh, about Mo Brooks, the uh, the pro-Trump Republican who ran for the Senate in Alabama, he just lost on Tuesday. Trump had endorsed him and then had withdrawn the endorsement and endorsed his uh, opponent. Well, Mo Brooks is angry. And so to get back at Donald Trump, it appears that he has forwarded texts, text messages that he received from Donald Trump instructing Brooks on how to apply for a presidential pardon oh, wow. in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th riots. Wow. So he's saying Trump has denied that he had anything to do with January 6th, and he denied that he was offering up pardons if we would go out on a limb. Here's the proof that he's a liar. That's what you get you, when you rescind your endorsement. We're going to have to leave it there on this absolutely terrible day. Terrible. I want to thank all of our guests and of our engineers and producers, of course. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday. 